Hello, I'm Danny Aiken, president of Southeastern Seminary. This podcast is a variety of audio resources from around Southeastern. To learn more about Southeastern, visit scbts.edu. You got your Bibles with you. I need you to turn to chapter 14. I have a lot to do and a short time to get there, as I'm, I'm told. I want to thank you, Ryan, for that introduction, especially that definitive part of that. I'm not all that confident about that. You will get my opinion on things, though. As we look at chapter 14 of the book of Revelation, we want to set the stage before we do that. The church under oppression has always rushed to read the book of Revelation. It was true in antiquity as well as it is in modern days as well. I guarantee you, in Ukraine, there are believers who are reading the book of Revelation. The reason is not always that they see their situation as the fulfillment of biblical prophecy, but instead, Revelation gives the oppressed assurance that our God is in control. He will set things right in His time. He sees and rewards faithfulness, especially if it costs us our lives. Our text today especially touches on these topics. Now, as I approach the text, I'm not going to spend time going through all the different opinions that are on each individual item. In fact, our text today is a target-rich environment for such investigations. No, today I'm going to give you my opinion, and we're going to call that my humble but accurate opinion about what these things are. And for you longtime Southern Baptists, you realize that I just stole that line from Adrian Rogers. The good news is that the purpose and intent of the text is to provide hope and spur endurance of the persecuted church. And this is true no matter how you identify the 144,000, the 24 elders, the beast, the false prophet, or Babylon. Where the believer goes awry is when we force interpretive grids onto the book and miss the significance of the text as it sits in its context. And so today, my goal is to explicate the text to give you grounds for hope and assurance that would be expressed in radical faithfulness. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, the hour is yours. We ask you, God, to glorify yourself, encourage your saints, and lead us by your Spirit to radical faithfulness. Lord, fill us with your Spirit, both to speak and to hear, but most of our Lord to do. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Our text today is Revelation 14, 1 through 20, and our topic is hope and endurance. Our text, let's set the context if we will, our text concludes the third and last interlude of the apocalypse. Now, an interlude is like an excursus or an aside from the main narrative. This aside spans chapters 12 through 14. John had seen, way back in chapter 5, a very important book sealed with seven seals. This book is a book of warning, lamentation, and woe, the judgment on the nations. And to open the book, all seven seals must be broken. Our Lord is the only one worthy to open the seals. 
And when he does so, he releases judgment after judgment. And the last seal opens seven trumpets of judgment. And the seventh trumpet that announces the coming of the kingdom and destruction of God's enemy opens seven bowls of wrath. And our interlude is inserted between the seventh trumpet sounding and the bowls of wrath being poured out on the earth. This interlude describes just how we got here and where we're going. It is redemptive history from a cosmic perspective. Its purpose is to prepare for what is coming and to foster endurance. And so what is this interlude? Very quickly, John saw a woman who I think is Israel, giving birth to a son when there is war in heaven. We see the serpent of Eden is now turned into a dragon that recruits a third of the stars of the heaven, believe are fallen angels. The woman gives birth to a son, obviously Christ, who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. And when the devil and his angels are cast down through the earth, a loud voice declares, Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows his time is short. The enraged dragon attacks the woman, but the rest of the earth helps her. Then the furious dragon turns to the rest of her children, believe the church, and the dragon raises a great beast with ten horns and seven heads, indicating great power that deludes the earth into worshiping the dragon. This beast is full of blasphemies and arrogance and turns to the saints. It was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. And the earth dwellers, all of them, worship the beast except for true believers. Then another beast arises, completing an unholy counterfeit trinity. He performs false signs and deceives the earth to worship the first beast. And all must have the mark of that first beast to sell or trade, a mark in the hand or the forehead. The number of the beast is identified as 666. It all seems very bad. Evil seems to be winning. Then John notes an important shift. And I saw, behold... The scene shifts to the Lamb and His followers on Mount Zion. And our task this morning is to understand and apply this chapter to our lives. We'll have two parts this morning. We'll have an overview of the whole chapter, and then we're going to return to focus on the 144,000. So first, let's take a look at our overview. It's 14, 1 through 20, and it is a message of hope that is given in three movements. This is going to be a panoramic view, a wide-angle lens, if you will, and we're we're going to go quickly through this part. So this first movement of the three shifts the scene to heaven on Mount Zion, where the 144,024 elders and, and a host of other beings worship the Lamb. And at 14, 1 through 5, we see the Lamb on Zion, and He is poised and ready So while the forces of the dragon seem to be winning, the Lamb stands on Zion. The 144,000 are with him along with a host of angels and the 24 elders of chapter 4. Scholars debate nearly every detail, but what is undisputable is that the Lamb is coming. Take a look at verse 1, please. 
Then I looked, and behold, the Lamb was standing on Mount Zion with him 144,000, having his name and the name of his Father written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven like the sound of many waters, like the sound of loud thunder. And the voice which I heard was like the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been purchased from the earth. These are the ones who have not been defiled with women, for they have kept themselves chaste. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been purchased from among men as the firstfruits of God and to the Lamb. And no lie was found in their mouth, for they are blameless. Now very, very quickly, here are the important details. First, the Lamb is Christ. There's no doubt about that. And the description, though, adds more detail. There is a voice like the sound of many waters. It's not quite certain who makes this sound. The voice might belong to the 144,000 or the host of heavens, but it might be Christ, and that is at 1.5, it actually uses that terminology for his voice. But without a doubt, the allusion to this great voice, the sound of many waters, comes from Ezekiel 43.2. Listen to what it says. And behold... The glory of God of Israel was coming from the east, and the sound of His coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with His glory. Then we see the Lamb standing, and hence at His purpose. He is coming from the east to harvest the earth. Then we see that they celebrate it, and what's interesting, they celebrate the harvest before it ever happens. And our takeaway point is this. Victory is coming. It is coming for those allied with the Lamb. And it's not just that it's coming, but it's already come. It's yours, and nobody can stop it. He stands poised and ready to come. And then the second movement. God announces to the world that judgment and salvation are coming through the flying proclamations of three angels. This is 14, 6 through 13. And these messengers then give us the fuel for endurance. These three angels proclaim loudly through the air to the earth dwellers. This is an interesting phrase. It's the same phrase used in the Old Testament of the inhabitants of the land of Canaan. It's consistent that way except in one verse in Jeremiah where Jeremiah refers to Canaan, not to Israelites, as earth dwellers inhabitants of the land. It might not be a nice description of them, those filled with idolatry. In 14, 6 through 7, the first angel peels through the sky, and it is, he contains the eternal gospel. Now, there are two points to apply here. The first is that the emphasis here is on the judgment to come if you don't receive the gospel. And the second is this, that immediately before the harvest of the earth, our God declares the gospel to all who would hear it. But what this shows is a demonstration of the utter depravity of lost humanity who would prefer in the face of this announcement to continue to worship the beast. The second angel tells the 
doom of Babylon. He says, fallen, fallen is Babylon. And it's interesting that the, the tense that he uses here is a bit of an unusual tense. It normally describes a completed action. It's not that Babylon is going to fall. He says it's already dead. And what this is is a way of expressing in Greek of an action so certain that you speak of it in the past tense. The people of God lived in exile in Babylon. They were tempted to compromise. They were persecuted for standing strong. And the term here means that the lost world system arrayed against God and his saints are doomed. They have no way to endure. And then finally in 14, 9 through 11, we see the doom of the idolaters. And this angel announces to these that chose to worship the beast in spite of the angel's proclamation that they will know the full strength of God's wrath. And it is never ending. The end of this passage has an interesting phrase. He says, here is the endurance of the saints. In our interlude, this is the second time that this has been said. It's also been said in 13, 8 through 10, if anyone is to be taken captive, to captivity he goes. If anyone is to be slain with the sword, with the sword he must be slain. Here is the endurance of the faith of the saints. So in chapter 13, what he tells them, why you need to have endurance in faith. There's a possibility that the enemies of God kidnapped and or killed the saints. They must believe and endure no matter what the cost. But here in chapter 14... He gives the motivation for endurance. You see, those who oppress will get their reward. And those who endure will get their reward. Here is the endurance of the saints who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed is the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, right, says the Spirit, so that they may rest from their labors for their deeds follow them. See, God vindicates the sufferers, martyrs he previously mentions. So embracing the truth of the angel's message is our fuel for endurance. The third movement happens quickly. God delivers on his promise of salvation and judgment and harvest of the earth begins. The reapers are sent to harvest the earth in two stages. The first stage is 14, 14 through 16, Christ harvests believers. There's one like the Son of Man sitting on a cloud. He swings his sickle to reap the harvest of the earth. The imagery comes from Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 through 14, where one like the Son of Man delivers the kingdom to the Ancient of Days. But here, this is not the delivery of the kingdom. This is the gathering of those saints. It is the moment before he delivers the kingdom. This causes us to anticipate the completion as described by Daniel. Second, at 14, 17 through 20, an angel harvests unbelievers. He completes the harvest of the earth. This time it's described as grape clusters that are put into the winepress of the wrath of God. And this wrath, the cost of it is enormous. He describes it 
crushing out blood from the winepress as high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. That's 184 miles. This is a giant reservoir of human destruction. Believers are spared the winepress of his wrath. Unbelievers are righteously judged, and it is devastating. And to sum up, the chapter reminds of three truths. Christ is ready to come. Second, our endurance is fueled by the knowledge of the gospel and the doom of Babylon and her minions. God sees, knows, and will reward faithfulness, especially unto death. He will harvest the earth for both for reward and retribution. And causes us now to stop and ponder. This is why the persecuted church has always loved the book of Revelation. There is hope beyond whatever the human outcome is. We've been told the ending. Even if we don't understand all the details, we understand the ending. He wins. And because of this... Hope is the air that we breathe. And this is not just for the facing of life-threatening violence. It is for every trouble we face, from the least to the greatest. Let's take a little exercise and start from the least and go to the greatest. So, beloved, have you failed a test? The Lamb is standing in glorious victory. Take a deep breath of His victory. Got a traffic ticket? The Lamb is standing, ready to come in glorious victory. Take a deep breath of victory. Unjustly accused, the Lamb is standing and ready to come. Fired from your job, the Lamb is standing and ready to come in glorious victory. Diagnosed with cancer? The Lamb is standing, ready to come in glorious victory. Take a deep breath of what he has accomplished. Mourning the death of a loved one, the lamb is standing ready to come in glorious victory. Walking through sickness with your spouse or child, the lamb is victorious. Facing the hatred of the world that would like to see nothing better than you did, take a deep breath. The victory of God they cannot touch your outcome. There's coming a day when the Lamb returns as the warrior ram and the lion of the tribe of Judah, and every tear will be wiped away. And the message is His day is coming. And that day will all make sense. And then remember, He is the embodiment of victory. He is coming to set things right. That's the overview of the chapter. Now I want to turn back to verses 1 through 5 and take a closer look at the 144,000. If you have your Bibles, you need to turn back a little bit to chapter 7, verses 1 through 8. For time's sake, I'm going to summarize. But in this verse is where we first met them. And so we're going to ask the question, who are they? First of all, they are the 144,000, right? So the number indicates fullness. 
12,000 times 12 is neat and tidy, and it must be a symbolic uh, number. It, uh, It indicates fullness of something. In chapter 7, they halt the four winds of destruction that are coming upon the earth until these are sealed. The earth cannot be harmed until they are sealed. The angels hold back this wind until this is accomplished. Then John hears something, and you should underline that word here in your Bible. He doesn't see this. He hears it, and he hears them being sealed. Out of every tribe, 12,000 are sealed. Now, the list of tribes is unusual. It's arranged according to their mothers. And uh, Judah comes first. And then Joseph and his um, son become separate tribes. It's it's an unusual list. And there's no consensus on scholarship what that unusual listing means. But it's not the way that it's listed that is the significance. It's that it is listed. It is a census of Israel uh, that he describes. Now, it is reminiscent of military census in the Old Testament. Moses took a census like that, Numbers 1-3. David was incited to glorifying himself by ordering a census in 2 Samuel 24, is ostensibly to see his military might and flex his muscles a little bit. Then it says that they are sealed. Now, the seal is either wax or clay, and it's fresh. And so that the uh, ruler would take a signet ring or a stamp and press an image into the seal to mark it authoritatively. This seal marks that these men and women belong to God. It is noticeable, though, to others. I want you to catch that. The seal on their forehead is not hidden. It is loud. It is uh, prominent. And everybody can see it. This is what John hears. Then he turns and sees. John sees an uncountable multitude in heaven. This is not the entirety of the people of God, like I believe the 24 elders are. There are not even the full number of believers in the eschaton because the first reaper harvests the earth in chapter 14. I see the 144,000 he heard and sealed are these people, this innumerable crowd. Because he turns and asks one of the elders, who are these? And he says, these are the ones who come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. To fulfill my promise to Ryan, I cautiously identify them as the fullness of the martyrs during the great tribulation. There's a set number. Now fast forward to chapter 14. We've seen who they are. Now we're going to see what they are. In chapter 14 that we read earlier, we discover what's on the seal. The name of the Lamb and the Father are on their foreheads. And in contrast to the earth dwellers who bear the mark of the beast, 
You see, in antiquity, seals were, is what you used rather than a signature. Marks by pen or ink can be faked and forged. The seal is far more secure and representative of the authority. The mark of the beast, then, is actually a counterfeit for this seal of the, for the people of God. At 14.3, they've been purchased from the earth. Also at 14.3, they sing a song only they know before the throne. The text says that harpists are harping their harps. It's an emphatic, demonstrating joy and celebration going on in heaven. At 14.4, they are pure. Some take this as the imagery of the bride of Christ, but that interpretation... Uh, makes the marriage defilement as well. That's not a New Testament teaching. Instead, what I believe that they are, are soldiers in a holy war. In Deuteronomy 23, 9 through 14, it describes how the armies of God are to act. They are to be pure. They are not to have sexual relations with their wives while they are on duty. They are to dig latrines outside the camp because God is walking with them and is part of their camp. This explains David and Uriah the Hittite. Remember, David wanted to bring Uriah home so that he could have relations with Bathsheba and cover up his sin. But Uriah the Hittite would not he, in fact, slept outside of his house, would not sleep with his wife, would stand in solidarity with his soldiers who were also showing restraint, being holy warriors for God. They follow the Lamb wherever he goes. In this case, it's even into death but the road ends in heaven. And finally, the text describes them as the first fruits. First fruits typically anticipate, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> more to come. And so it's not likely that it's more martyrs, though, because it's a set number. It's more believers. So the first fruits indicate for them not only that the believers will be harvested from the earth. But they, these, the 144,000, hold a special place. And so altogether, the imagery is an appropriation of the Old Testament's holy warrior. This leads us to observe some significant things about the 144,000. When we see them, they are not in battle. Their battle is complete. They are before the throne, and they have a particular place of honor. They, Revelation has this emphasis on a holy war. But this is not like jihad, where they take up arms and lies because they cannot fight in the arena of ideas. This is a different thing. The battle of the 144,000, their warfare was their endurance. By the time we see them in chapter 14, their battle is over. 
In Mississippi, we would say their hay is in the barn. And so literally, in their lives, all of Hades had broken forth all over them. And yet, they did not hide. They had a seal on their forehead. They did not give in. They did not capitulate. They did not value anything above the praise of the Lamb. They fought the good fight unto death. And they are the ultimate examples of believers who have believed and were faithful in face of the most significant of opposition. They are God's warriors. And listen, when we live a life of faithfulness, we are fighting in an eschatological war. Let's pause and meditate on on this idea. Most American Christians think the meaning of life is the American dream with Jesus added to it. I believe some seminary students do so as well. Revelation picks a paints a much different picture. I often describe it as an attitude wrench or a worldview wrench. It will adjust your attitude. It will adjust your worldview. Human beings are born into an eschatological war. If you become a Christian, you're now the only tangible object in this eschatological war. Our battle is not one of violence. Our battle is faithfulness and a radical faithfulness. This leads us to ask the question, to you where you sit, how's the battle going? For the time allotted, I see three major assessments that should gauge your battle readiness. The first is, what do you value the most? I heard an illustration many years ago, and I'm going to borrow it today. Imagine a pyramid with all the things you value inside the figure. The item you value the most is at the very top, with no room on either side. As we start at the base... More and more are arranged in a hierarchical order until at the very top is that thing you value above all else. Then we're going to take that base and we're going to move it towards the top. And as we move it, we're pressing all the stuff on the, on the base of it out so that only the most valuable things are remaining as we're pushing it up. It is not enough for faithfulness to Jesus to be near the top. God's warriors have him at the top. And if you have anything else that is above that, it will be challenged. What do you value the most? Second, how much compromise is tolerable for you? Now, in the realm of politics or diplomacy, compromise can be a good thing. And our faith, it is not. It is partial surrender by definition. It is, in in a sense, what we do is we trade. So some surrender righteousness for money or for relationships or for pleasure or for convenience or for power. Maybe even for grades. How much compromise is tolerable for you? 
And the third is, how far are you willing to follow Jesus? I will follow him as long as it is convenient. I will follow him as long as it is safe. I will follow him as long as it is painless. I will follow him as long as it's in the south. As long as it's in America. As long as it's back home. What happened to wherever he goes? Our Lord calls us for a higher commitment. Even though we know there is. I'd like to illustrate this with the journey of the endurance. A couple of weeks ago, they found this ship at the bottom of the Weddell Sea. They had a Discovery Channel documentary on it. Already a celebrated polar explorer, Sir Ernest Shackleton coordinated with the British Imperial Trans-Antarctic Expedition with the goal of accomplishing the first crossing of the Antarctic continent, a feat he considered to be the last great journey of the age of exploration. December 1914. Shackleton set sail with a 27-man crew. He gets into the Weddell Sea, and eventually the ship gets bound in the ice. They try their hardest. They are, are, are trying to crack the ice and pry it open to get it out, but nothing works. And for 10 months, the endurance is locked in the ice, and the ice drifts. With meager food, clothing, and shelter, Shackleton and his men were stranded on the ice floes where they camped for another five months. When they had drifted to the northern edge of the pack, they encountered open leads of water, and the men sailed the three small lifeboats they'd salvaged to a bleak island called Elephant Island. There is nothing on Elephant Island, and nobody is coming near it because it's nowhere near the shipping lanes. If we're counting, they were on land for the first time in 497 days but no hope of rescue. Recognizing the dire situation, Shackleton and five others get in a lifeboat that is named the James Caird, and they accomplish the impossible. They survive a 17-day, 800-mile journey through the world's worst seas to South Georgia Island, where a whaling station was located. The bad news is not over. They're on the wrong side of the island. And they have to cross the island to their, to their last hope. 26 miles over glaciers considered impassable to reach the whaling station on that other side. They're starved, frostbitten, wearing rags. Shackleton and two others made the trek. And in August 1916, 21 months after the initial departure of the endurance, Shackleton himself returned to rescue the men on Elephant Island. And although they'd withstood the most incredible hardship and privation, not one member of the crew was lost. An incredible story of endurance, an absolute marvel, this heroic tale. But what I find the amazing part of this is how Shackleton recruited his men. He put an advertisement in the paper, and here's what it said. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful, honor and recognition in case of success, Ernest Shackleton. 
And 27 men said, I'm all in. Today our Lord has told you what's going to happen. We don't really know all the details, but it can get bad in our lifetime. He says, he has his own advertisement here in the book of Revelation. And it says, men and women wanted for a hazardous journey. Delayed wages, bitter persecution, long stays away from home, only faithfulness rewarded. Not one person will be lost. I ask you, who will sign up? When you gave your life to Christ, you did. We are warriors in an eschatological battle and our fight is a radical faithfulness where nothing but faithfulness to Jesus takes priority. He's calling you to take those steps. Now, nobody today is calling for volunteers for martyrdom. The calling is for a long faithfulness, a kind of faithfulness when, that you display when things are easy, when you're alone, when you're with friends, or even during persecution. Maybe even the highest level of persecution. And you approach all those things from the least to the greatest with one thought in mind. You want to hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. Would you join me in prayer? As we close in prayer, I'm going to ask that you quietly rise to your feet. Our team is coming to lead us in worship. But before they come, I feel that it's necessary to do business with God. We don't do formal invitations at Southeastern Chapel, but God is giving you an invitation to dispense with all the trivial things that hinder your faithfulness. And here's what I want you to do. Here's what I pray almost every time. Psalm 139. Show me my wickedness and see if there be any wicked way within me and lead me in the way everlasting let us pray father in heaven as we examine our hearts we ask you that you would move in a mighty way among these students among this faculty to be done with the trivial and meaningless that drags us down and encumbers us we ask you, Lord, that we would run the race that is set before us with endurance so that we would hear, well done, you good and faithful servant. Lord, give us this word. Who is sufficient for these things? We can't gin this up. We can only receive it from your spirit, and you've already promised it. We ask you, God, to hear the prayers of your saints. Move among us in a mighty way. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Consider giving to Southeastern Seminary online or visiting us for a preview day. For information on how to give or sign up for a preview day, visit scbts.edu.